The scripture reading this morning is Jeremiah 5, verses 18 through 31. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. And it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer him, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah saying, hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and not seen, and who have ears and not heard. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence, whom have placed in the sand, the sand as the border of the sea, by perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it, and although its waves toss to and fro, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has defiant and rebellious heart, and they have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us fear now the Lord our God, who gives rain, both the former and the latter, in, this, in its season. He reserves for us the appointment, appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap, they catch men, and their cage is full of birds. So their house are full of deceit. There, therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat, they are sleek, yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet, the fa the pro yet they prosper. And the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? And astonishing and horrifying thing has been committed in this land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and the people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? Is this on? Can you hear? Is it on? Good. Perfect. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's truly a wonderful honor to be here. Um, it is great to be amongst you all. Uh, before we start today, uh, I want to give a big thank you to David for answering my call this morning, and Brother Josh for stepping up. I do apologize. I had left my thumb drive at home, and I had to turn around and get it. But by the grace of God, I am here. We have wonderful people among us, always willing to pitch in. Today's lesson is kind of interesting. The title says, How Well Do You Listen? And for myself, I've struggled with this all my life. And I want to give you a small little anecdote of why this matters. Not just because it's a sermon before us all, not just because we've read from the words of Jeremiah and ultimately the words of God our Father, but because if you don't listen well, you can miss out on the most beautiful things in life. I've often thought I've had troubles hearing. Every time I take a hearing test, I excel. 
They tell me you're in the top spectrum. You can hear everything. You can hear sounds most people do not hear. But then I think to myself, wow, how do I miss when people talk to me? Is it that they're talking too softly? Sometimes I get excited. Somebody might say something critically important and I miss it. And it helps me to think, how well do I listen? So today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at an interesting piece of our history. It happened some time ago. In fact, it happened during a time that some people present here this morning would have been around to experience it. And we're going to tie it into the overall lesson of how well do you listen. So we will start with history, we will break down our scripture, and then we will show how we can improve our own listening skills. We'll even talk about what it means to listen in the biblical sense, because Jesus often will, said, will say, he who has ears, let him hear. And we'll take a look at that today. So how well do you listen? Let's see if I can navigate this correctly. Whoops, that's the other way. I'm not used to the down arrow. So as I said, we're going to have some history. We're going to explain our scripture. We're going to explain even what the types of listeners are. We're going to declare together what a good li listener is. And then we're going to figure out how it is you can improve your own listening. And I don't say this to make anybody feel bad this morning. But I think it's interesting because we can all benefit from some, something like this. Because as our brother Lewis had read, it's clear the Israelites were not listening to God. They wouldn't listen to his prophets. They wouldn't listen to him as he spoke openly before them. So let's start with the history component. It's Christmas time. This is not a lesson on Christmas, if you will. We know the birth of Christ is not December 25th. We absolutely know that. But there is a tie-in here that I want to kind of point out as we look at history. How many here today remember the song or even like the song, Do You Hear What I Hear? How many people know the history behind that song? It's actually really interesting. The song itself was written by Noel Regny. He's French. He's a Frenchman. He had come over to America and immigrated here after World War II. It was written by him and it was composed by his wife, Gloria Shane. Now, let's take a look at these people. I mentioned he was a Frenchman, but Gloria is from America. Noel is Catholic when you look at his history. He becomes Unitarian, which they believe everything, unfortunately. And then Gloria, his wife, is actually Jewish. And normally when they would make music together, and they've made several hit songs together, it would be Noel making the music and Gloria doing the lyrics. But for this particular song, Do You Hear What I Hear?, the roles were reversed. So who here remembers when that song came out? Some of the older people might. It's from the 1960s. It was written in October 1962, to be precise. That'll be two years after my mom was born, be about four years after my father was born. But some here are old enough to remember that song. It's often associated with Christmas time. In fact, it is actually a Christmas song when you look at it and when you know it. But it wasn't made famous because of who they were. Even though they were important, they already had made good songs together that people knew. They had made a name for themselves. But this song itself was made popular by Bing Crosby. By 1963, that's when it had international recognition. But what else happened in 1962, particularly in October? The Cuban Missile Crisis. 
Now you might say, well, what does this have to do with the sermon? Well, if you know the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were on the edge of nuclear obliteration, not just for ourselves, but the whole world. You see, that year, when the Cuban Missile Crisis was underway, Rezhny himself was approached by a record producer. And they had asked him, please write us a Christmas song. But he himself was hesitant because by that time, Christmas was already way too commercialized. He just didn't want to do it. And if you remember the details behind the missile crisis, the feeling in America, and at least in the West, was one of despair. People would turn on the news and the radio to figure out what next. We're facing nuclear obliteration. The Soviets had decided to place missiles in Cuba. That's right on our doorstep. Cuba is about 90 miles from the closest point to Florida. That's extremely close. Those missiles could have touched New York. They could have touched even Wichita if that's where they wanted to strike. The whole world was on edge. But this man was approached to write a Christmas song. To him, Christmas meant a time of peace and joy. But with the Cuban Missile Crisis, how could that time of joy be present? You see, Regeny was actually recruited by the Nazis. He was forced into conscription as a Frenchman to serve with Nazi Germany. And he hated it, but he had to do it. It was that or his life. One of the graces of God given to this man is he could speak a type of dialect of French-German, very unique, that the Nazis could really benefit from. But he hated the Nazis. In fact, he rebelled against them. He joined the French resistance. You see, for Regny, understanding Christmas as peace and joy and understanding the missile crisis before him, he knew what darkness and evil looked like. On his way home one evening, he saw something remarkable that changed his mind. Remember, he didn't want to make a Christmas song. He didn't want to make any music. He's, he's caught up in the events. On his way home, he saw something remarkable. And this comes from an interview with both him, his wife, and some other people very close to him. On his way home, he saw two mothers walking outside with their children, their newborn babies in their strollers. And while the mothers were walking and talking together, he looked at the children and he noticed something remarkable, something that spurred joy in his own heart. The children were looking at each other and smiling, very peaceful. He said at that moment, his heart had changed. It was filled with joy. He was inspired to do something about it. And when he was interviewed further, he said that as his mood had changed to an extraordinary outcome, he decided to make a song. He decided to meet the obligation. The record label had come to him and said, please make a song. Help us out. It's good for the time of year. And he had shared that when his heart had changed, it was filled with poetry. That the newborn babies represented newborn lambs and the rest is history. The song is iconic. In the first year, 250,000 or so copies made. Several million within the first year after that when Bing Crosby brought it to international stardom. So why did I bring up this music in the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, if you know who authored the Cuban Missile Crisis, you'll kind of see where we go next. The name Nikita Khrushchev, very smart man, 
absolutely brutal and wicked. And I'm not here to slam him. But I'm here to show just why this is serious. And we will see shortly how it relates. Khrushchev knew of God. In fact, Khrushchev hates God. You see, born in the late 1800s, 1894 to be precise, he had lived his life caught up in the destruction of all religion. And when I say the destruction of religion, I'm not talking about Islam or Judaism. I'm literally talking about the destruction of Christianity. And he made it his life goal to do that. In fact, he is the most prominent figure in Soviet history to attack the church. Kind of see where I'm going with this a little bit? You have one man who at some level believes in Jesus and looks for the peace and tranquility that only Christ could bring. And you have a man willing to annihilate the entire world. And right on his doorstep is the fact that he hates the church. You see, when you look at the history of the Soviet Union, you have to remember two key things. We are conditioned to hate Russia, but why? Why should we hate Russia? Russia itself has done nothing, and I literally mean nothing, to the United States. But the Soviets have. The Soviet Union is gone, but we still hate Russia. Why? TV tells us to hate Russia. So we do it. In 1941, guess who were allies? The Soviets and the Americans. From 1941 until the late 1950s, the church in Russia actually grew. The Soviets were somewhat tolerant of religion because they were focused on other things. In the 1940s, they had to beat the Nazis on their doorstep. After the war, they had to rebuild their country devastated by the Nazis, and they inflicted massive damage. But so too did the Soviets inflict damage on their own. But do you know who's there the whole time? Khrushchev, slowly consolidating power, slowly working up his anger to hate on the churches. He wasn't unfamiliar with what Christ was. He just opposed Christ wholeheartedly. He was so intolerant of religion, he thought of new and heavy-handed ways to oppress the church. Now, if you think back to our reading, and again, we will break it down here as we carry on together, but if you think back to our reading, do you recall where it said, oppression, those who oppress? Let me give you an idea of just how much Khrushchev had hated God and Christianity in general. By 1932, this is before the outbreak of World War II, by 1932, he was the first, first Moscow City Party secretary, and he had already initiated the destruction of over 200 Eastern Orthodox churches. 200 churches. That's a lot. I would submit to you even one church is too many, but over 200 by 1932. And what's remarkable, those churches themselves were very significant to Russian heritage. Some 20 years later, 1954, July 1954, he initiated an even more ambitious plan calling for the massive destruction of Christianity in the Soviet Union. And he got it underway. He had known that the Soviets were lax, that they were tolerant, but he doubled and tripled his effort. As he consolidated power, more of his plan could roll out. 
When Khrushchev had consolidated enough power, and we're going to look at the year 1959 as we move through the timeline now. 1959, within a year, church buildings had halved. By 1965, church buildings in Russia were already a one-third of what they once were. And let me give you an idea of what these numbers mean. Prior to 1959, 22,000 churches. Within a year, 13,008. And by 1965, 7,873. And we know this because the Soviets actually were meticulous record keepers. Khrushchev was very brutal. He would ban parents from teaching religion to their children. He knew the future of religion was not in the old timers sitting in the pews. He knew that if you stop the kids from learning, you could, offend, you could eventually and effectively have it die out. And that was his goal. He had barred services to the point where taking communion, which we shared in together today, any child over four years old couldn't take communion. He would ban religious services held even outside the building. Sometimes people would gather to pray or hear a sermon outside or somewhere else. But he would go even further. In 1929, there was a piece of Soviet legislation that essentially banned all things religion. The communists hated religion through and throughout. If you read the works of Marx, and he is a smart man, he's twisted, but he's very smart. You can see just how much he hates religion. Khrushchev knew the law had said we must ban pilgrimages. We have opportunity to increase government surveillance. Let me pause there for a second. We have the equivalent in America. Have you ever heard of the FISA court? It's the same nonsense. Khrushchev knew that they had pieces of legislation in place that would allow the government to record everybody, all of the personal identities of all adults who wished to be baptized, who would want to attend a wedding or even attend a funeral. Church bells themselves, the purpose behind a church bell, today we have our watches, and forgive me, I blundered that one, but church bells would tell the locals it's time to worship, and they're a beautiful thing. But they were banned. Daytime services would be banned in some rural areas, and you know what the stupid excuse was by the Soviets? We have harvest time. From May until October, instead of being in the pews in the churches, you have to be out in the field harvesting the grain. And this is what happens when people cede their autonomy to the government. All part of state planning. The Soviet state itself would force retirement of certain individuals working in service to the Lord. Early retirement. They would arrest them. They would imprison many church members, many church leaders even, who dared criticize something like atheism. We're thankful here we can speak out against atheism. It's absolutely wrong and destructive. But back under the Soviet Union, if Khrushchev was in charge, you try that, you might not see your family anymore. Anybody who even spoke out against the state saying these are mad plans, they could have been arrested and imprisoned. And you know what? It gets even worse than that. Khrushchev had doubled down the efforts to force the state, 
to buy into something what I personally think is absolutely twisted. Anyone who dared perform Christian charity, in our Bible we read the Jews in their alms. Today, Christians, we will give. We will give something, service, love, help, financial support, something, any aspect of Christian charity. You know, helping the guy on the street, if you will. If they knew you were a Christian, you could be arrested for this. But even those who spread the gospel, those who spread the gospel by personal example, the state knew about the people. They would absolutely know. And you might say, well, how? How do they know? When you get fearful for your life, you might start snitching on your neighbor. That happened a lot. But this is not the first time Russia has undergone such destruction of Christianity. They had done it in the 1800s, particularly in the region we now know as Ukraine. Russia has long struggled with this. You see, Russia itself is not our enemy because the TV tells us so. Russia is much like we are today. They have people that want to go to church. They worship Jesus. But they've had a tendency in their history to reject God. And we're seeing it, unfortunately, in America. And I'm not saying us in this room. I'm talking about as a whole. They pervert worship. They ban worship. Again, you just target the children. It's the same in America. Removing prayer in schools. When I first learned of the song I asked you about earlier, I was in school. Grade one. It was great. It was for a Christmas play. I was like, this is a great song. But I never knew what it meant. So on one hand, you have the hope of an entire nation resting in something as small as a song. Because it is pivotal. That song, Do You Hear What I Hear, was actually used to protest the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was used in protest. In fact, it divided the husband and wife. They didn't know what to do because they had to find the courage to share the message of peace. Today they might be dismissed as hippies, but they weren't hippies. One nation with hope. And another, and we have a funny term in Canada, we call Russians that are off the edge Crazy Ivan, because they do crazy things. Khrushchev knew that putting the missiles there would help the Soviet cause. He wasn't an idiot. He might have been a madman. People think he's an idiot because he acts mad. No, mad people are actually intelligent. They've just gone way too far. We know Khrushchev, he's the one that bangs the podium with his shoe. He's very famous. But the difference here is not the United States versus the Soviets. No, we can make those comparisons if we talk about things like the Olympics or maybe the miracle on ice. That's where it is the US versus the Soviets. My friends, this morning I would share with you that this is much more of those who love Jesus and those who hate Jesus. And as we see with our scripture reading today, it will fit nicely. You see, what the Pharisees didn't know, eventually, that they would be the ones destroying religion. Now, the Pharisees are not here yet. They haven't gone into captivity. But by the time Jesus approaches them, and as we even thought today, the things offensive to them is because they thought what they were doing was okay with respect to God. No different than Khrushchev. So now, my friends, let's take a look at our scriptures together. And what we'll do is we will break down Jeremiah 
in our reading today, and we will go over each one. So if you'd like to follow along, Jeremiah 5, verse 18. If you look back to verse 10, you will see that Jeremiah has revealed that God declares that this is not the complete destruction of the people, not for their rebellion. And so the prophet begins to iterate that God has pledged to spare a remnant. And if you're curious, today we are the remnant. If you are faithful, you are literally considered the remnant of God. You are spared from destruction. And something to contrast, if you like to dig in your Bible deeper, look at all of Nahum chapter 8, where he talks about the complete destruction of a place called Nineveh. Quite different. God is saying, you have rebelled, you haven't listened to me, you don't honor me, you are worthy of destruction. But he says, not complete destruction. And think about it for a moment. If he had completely destroyed them then, can Jesus show up? And now on to verse 19. What's interesting here is that there's a sense of eerie. There's a definite prophecy here happening. And if you look closely, it is the captivity of the Hebrews. This is their final major captivity. You see, Jeremiah is pointing out of the captivity into Babylon. Now, I mentioned the Pharisees are not here, but they're coming. And you've often heard me say it. When the Jews go into their captivity for 70 plus years, when they slowly come out, they don't all come out. But some people mindful know that they had failed God. They had reconsidered all of the prophecies and they had saw the horrors in Babylon that they said, we've got to double back our efforts and figure this out. The birth of the Pharisees literally was from the release of captivity. And so for hundreds of years until the time of Jesus, they start practicing this maligned view of scripture, doubling down. We don't want to go through that again. And who would they? They had to eat their own fecal matter in Babylon. I don't know if you've looked that up. That doesn't sound good. They didn't want to starve to death, but some of them had to eat their own waste. That sounds disgusting, doesn't it? Now you can imagine why they would be scared to anger God again, to go through that. And what about verses 20 through 25? And these are some of Jesus' most infamous statements when he's trying to get people to listen. The eyes that do not see and the ears that do not hear. Jeremiah is not the only prophet that would talk about this. Isaiah, we know, is infamous with this. And this is a remarkable reference to God's judicial hardening of the people. Now you might say, what is judicial hardening? We're going to talk about some examples in a bit here. But the judicial hardening of the people is, you go and break the law, you have to serve a consequence. And we're going to take a look at three key periods of the history of the Jews. And then we're going to look at a fourth period. The judicial hardening of the people. This hardening inflicted upon the people of God because they're rebellious and they're stubborn. They're lazy and they don't want to listen. Do you ever wonder why God asks the question, do you not even fear me? Do you not even tremble at my presence? They have seen him act. Take, for example, Mount Sinai. 
the people were scared to go near the mountain, Moses had to be instructed to make sure they wouldn't come up the mountain because God said he would destroy them had they had done that. But look at the perspectives there. Lowly Moses on the top of the mountain with God and the people down at the bottom, scared. And why wouldn't they be? I think I would be. I'm not going to try and tell you that I would be some brave man willing to test God's patience. But it's absolute madness. Any intelligent person to simply not fear God. And we will marvel at how incredible this is. But let's ask ourselves a question. Are we striving to be better? To mitigate these similar outcomes? Or are we striving to just be complacent? Maintain the status quo? You see, the Jews knew what they should have done and they didn't do it. The question is for us. If you do know what you should do, why don't you do it? You see, our almighty God, we had a wonderful lesson the other day from our brother David. God is the same yesterday as he is today, as he will be tomorrow. You see, his dealings with man never stopped. In fact, his dealings with man still happen today. And if you look for God everywhere, you will find God everywhere. If you look at World War II, God is present. If you look at World War I, God is present. If you look at the Revolutionary War, God is present. You know, I have friends that remark to me, they'll often ask me, do you think what's going on in Israel and Palestine today, do you think it is the second coming? No, no, not at all. Not because I can tell you what day it will come, but I can tell you that God tells us that no man could truly expect it. It will come like a thief in the night. So if we're able to remark like this, logic would have you understand that can't possibly be it. None of us know. But that's not the first time they've gone through conflict together, and it certainly will not be the last. But our almighty God, he's the same one that hurled the sun, the moon, and the stars into their place. Look at how big the sun is. We often will look at the sun, sometimes we marvel in its beauty, sometimes myself, man, it's so hot. But God, with little effort, hurls it into place. And what does the sun, the moon, and stars do? They obey the Lord perfectly. Think of it this way. Has the sun ever failed to come up? Has the moon ever left its position? Are the stars that are there today, are they not the same ones that God told Abraham when he said, look up into the sky? They obey perfectly. They're inanimate objects, but I, tr I tell you, they do not dare disobey their Lord. But we do. We're broken. But the purpose of this lesson is not to make you feel bad. It's to help you. This is the same God who sets the planets in their orbits. He had opened the skies to produce rain. The earth didn't always have rain. It always had water, but it didn't always have rain. Rain came when he opened the skies, and then the flood came. This is the same God that allows the roaring of the oceans, the waves, to crash. We don't have ships that can sustain all of this. People go on mighty cruises, which I'd like to go on a cruise one day because I love the water. But they get into some chaotic weather. 
Think of in the gospel accounts of how Jesus calms the storm. The same God. But God is not so distant from us that he doesn't care. God is the same God that sends us rain. You'll often hear me say, I love the rain today. I do love the rain. It's refreshing. We don't like to get wet. It kind of makes things a little bit awkward. You kind of feel funny. Maybe you smell funny. You get a little bit of water on you. Sloshing around, your feet get wet. It's kind of uncomfortable. But the rain, it's great. Doesn't God replenish our water? Doesn't he send us water for our refreshment? What about the waters of life? Let's move to the next part of our scripture. Verses 26 through 29. You see, when you look at these verses, we are presented with matters beyond just the simple religious failures of the Hebrew people. Not just the people of the nation of Israel, not just the cities that rejected God, but we deal with something far outscaling even them. And it relates to us today in this room. It relates to us. We begin to deal with the matters of social oppression, rampant injustice occurring. And did you know that social oppression and rampant injustice always follows when there is infidelity to God and unfaithfulness in the worship of God? You ever look at how Hitler rose to power? Have you ever heard of the Weimar Republic? Exactly like America. You know, I thought of writing a book one day, maybe the Lord will allow me to, I would call it Weimarica. Not Why America, but Weimar, like Weimar Republic, Weimarica. You see, they had largely rejected God already in Germany. Guess who can take over? We just talked about the Soviets. They had purged political officials, military officials, and they attacked the churches. What does the church represent in society? To the outsider, they don't know God, so you can't say God. You truly can't say God because they won't get it. But you can say moral compass. And if the churches are not behaving as if they should, where is the moral guidance? Where is the backbone for people to stand up to do right? Now, don't get me wrong. A church, absolutely, worshiping God, worships God. But to the unsuspecting person, they don't know what that means. But they understand a little bit of right and wrong. Most people will agree with you, unless they're totally depraved, that murder is wrong. They might argue with you to say, well, murder could be justified in this circumstance. Or they might even argue with you and say, it don't really matter in the end. But by and large, a moral compass is necessary. You see, even the most crazed atheists will never, ever try to take someone's life. They just think it's selfish and unfair. But as the church grows unfaithful, as the church starts to disappear, who is God's representation among the people? You see, earlier in the prophecy, look at verse 19 if you're following along. We find the people ask God a remarkable question. Oh Lord, why does this happen to us? And really, why does it happen to us? You know, I've asked God that a lot myself. Why is this happening in America? And then I look again and again and again, and it's like, oh yeah, we're rejecting him. Whoops. It's our own fault. God doesn't want to destroy us, but he will if we let him. What is God's reply? 
It sa he says, it's because you've forsaken me. You've served foreign gods in your land, and you will serve as strangers in a land that is not yours. That's a reference to Babylon. But what about serving the foreign gods in your land? Can a Christian be in a Buddhist temple and worship? No. But that happens in America. Anytime you hear a Christian politician saying freedom of religion, they're lying to you. Freedom of religion always in America was to stop the oppressors in Europe from killing people who wanted to believe in Jesus. It never meant to bring the Islamic and the Judaists and the Hindus and all of that alongside. It never once meant that. But you will see a politician on TV. It doesn't matter their colors. You, they might be your favorite politician of all time. They could wear your sport number and your jersey. It wouldn't matter. They're lying to you. Freedom of religion has never, ever, ever, ever meant that. But they've twisted it, and people believe that. And I'll give you an example to prove that I know what I'm talking about. I don't say this to boast, but consider the times of Pharaoh and the Hebrews. God often told the Pharaoh, let my people worship. That is freedom of worship. It's not bringing these people who hate Christ along for the ride and saying, hey, we all get along. We all don't kill each other. We all can serve the same God in the end. No, they have to submit to Christ just like we have to submit to Christ. That is the standard. There is no other. And so why shouldn't God visit such things on a nation? Isn't God one of justice? We often will hear God is love, and he is. But how can a loving God be unjust? Does it make sense? How can a loving God not pursue justice for his own? Does not God discipline the one whom he loves? Ask the other question. If God doesn't discipline someone, what does that tell you? He doesn't love them. When we read this portion of the prophecy delivered by Jeremiah, three classes of people are present. And they're all front and center. There are the rich who oppress the poor. Do we see that in America? I'm going to give you an example. And I'm not going to slander him, but I'm going to give you an example. Jeff Bezos. He's the founder of Amazon. You know he's in an adulterous relationship, right? Do you think he cares about poor people in America? No. Not without a tax receipt from the IRS. They would do nothing to help the poor in America. But he'll go into space. He'll chase these grand ventures. A second class of people that are present, the false prophets. And boy, do they ever deceive. One way to look at a false prophet in scripture is anyone who falsely teaches God's, pardon me, God's word. Anyone who falsely handles the word of God. And then, this is sort of the final straw among the people, the priests who misbehave. You see, among all of the people present, the priest is supposed to know the most because they practice it the most often. But they misbehave. They justify the things that shouldn't be done. Anytime you read in scripture, maybe our Lord is sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Who among the religious gave the money to Judas? Who bribed Judas? Why did Judas take the bribe? You might say, well, there was no bribe. It was a contractual agreement. You would sell somebody out for that a bit of money, would you? 
Let's look at the next part as we sort of wrap up our review here. Whoops, I went too fast. I think I've hit it twice. Oh, yeah, I did hit it twice. Sorry about that. Verses 30 to 31. God, in his wonderful eloquence, summarizes, through Jeremiah, the prevailing conditions that face both Judah and the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob is Israel. The main cause for this trouble is that the nation itself has ultimately failed to honor their sacred religious duty. And what was that sacred religious duty? They were obligated to praise and worship God correctly. Not just praise and worship him, but correctly. You think of the woman at the well. Those who worship God in truth and spirit, that is acceptable. Christ didn't teach something new per se. It might have been new to her because she knew the Messiah was coming. She didn't realize it was him. But to worship God in truth and spirit was the same requirement for Adam and Eve. You might say, well, religion didn't exist back then. Take a second look. But they had allowed false prophets to rise up. They had allowed the priests to become reprobate, to encourage, deceive, and even trick people with their wickedness. Now you might say, well, this sounds like some sort of con man coming to the door and offering me snake oil. No, no, that's not what gets a person. It's a slow undermining. You have to remember, these people lived with each other. They would have known each other for a number of years. These families would have been close. And all it takes is one guy saying something different ever so slightly, and then you have the Garden of Eden all over again. Satan, one word, twists the whole thing upside down. You shall not die. Jesus says you shall die. Satan, ever so subtly, twists it in chaos, massive chaos. But you see, the point is this. When religious restraints are loosened, so too become the moral restraints. They're loosened also, in other words. And in the case of ancient Israel, the people would quickly fall into pursuing selfish ambition. They would look after lustful goals. Lust can be anything. It's not just flesh, by the way. You've heard of bloodlust? Some people love war. They love the thrill of hunt. There are several forms of lust. Whatever the goals are, without a religious and moral compass, what does it matter? And if the people quickly fall into pursuing these things, it's very hard to come back. You see, by this time that the prophecy is delivered, the people so rapidly degenerated, God points out one remarkable thing. You guys love it, don't you? You love swimming around in the mire. You love having no moral guidance. You don't care about who I am. I'm the one who feeds you every day. Doesn't this sound like a parent and their child? Maybe an adolescent teen or something? God is really upset. And he simply remarks, you just love doing it, don't you? Let me ask you this. At this point, could they help themselves? They couldn't. It's too late. But you see, the grace of God is here. He says, I will destroy you, but not all of you. Some people might say, well, God is a murderous person. 
He doesn't care about anybody. Why would he save a remnant then? But how could the people ever, in such a depraved condition, heal themselves? Just like the days of the flood with Noah. And you have to remember that every idea and every imagination of man was always continuously evil. And what did God do? He wiped everyone out except Noah and his family. And then what did God do? He gave him the rainbow. And he said, never again. Has, has there been an event as cataclysmic as that? Some people would say we've been close, but we haven't had one for sure. Or consider faithful people such as Abraham, knowing even his own posterity to keep alive the knowledge of God. Noah did the same thing. Noah preached for 100 years. Nobody listened. Not one single soul. 100 years. We have a sister in the audience that's close to 100. That's a long time. 100 years. The Cuban Missile Crisis, 1960s. That's about 60 years ago or so. 61 to be exact. It's not that far removed. And so God is left to ask these questions. And he poses them. He literally says to the people of Israel, what should I do with you? You ever remember growing up, maybe you had upset your parents so much, and they say, what am I going to do with you? These are not easy questions even for God. God is very caring. He doesn't want to destroy them. He has to figure this out. His decisions are perfect. But you can see he's working through this situation. What should I do with you? I want you to learn. I want you to come and serve me, he says. What am I going to do with you? It's no different today. Of course, God is not caught by surprise. He knows all things. <coughs> But if you ever want to see this sort of play out in your scripture, compare what we've read together this morning in Jeremiah chapter 5 and take the first two chapters of Romans. You begin to see how it plays out. You begin to see why God does what he does and how he exactly does it. Doesn't God turn over people to their depravity? He's not going to come in and stop you and grab you by the hand. We want to do that like a toddler. But what if it's a 16-year-old doing the same thing? What if it's a 49-year-old doing the same thing? God doesn't just jump in like a parent. But at this point in the history of the people, and I mentioned judicial hardening. The judicial hardening of mankind was complete. But this is already, at this point in your Bible, this is the third time God has had to deal with his people in the exact same way. He had to merit out some form of judicial punishment for the people in hopes that they would learn, in hopes that it would help others come to him, and in hopes that it would protect the remnant. And let me explain those first three events, because I mentioned there would be four. You see, the time and condition of mankind before the flood was like this. And God's answer was the flood. That was the first judicial hardening. The second event and we don't talk about it much. Maybe we should. I would love to talk about it because every bit of our word is important. But the Tower of Babel. And who remembers what happened there? They had conspired. They say, let us go and peer into heaven. We will unite for one cause. God saw this and said, are you, are you kidding me? And the languages of the world 
are confused. And the third one, <coughs> it's a little dry, I apologize. The races of the world from Adam to the Jewish people, even unto the Gentiles, they had all become the same way. In other words, they resorted to the same actions. First was Cain, right? And we have the Jews and even the Gentiles resisting every ordinance of God. And they turned themselves over to Satan. And this is the third time. And guess what shows up? The final hope of mankind. Jesus, the blessed Redeemer. The blessed Savior, and this is his first advent or first appearance. And if we reflect back on these three events, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and returning from the captivity of Babylon, right? We're right before the captivity period here. The return from Babylon, and Jesus shows up. And God is essentially saying, this is your last chance. You see, the question has never been why God spares his remnant. The question becomes, why not spare a remnant? And this has an easy answer. And I mentioned it earlier. It is to always secure the path for the Savior. You see, Jesus spent his life hoping, hoping on people that they would hear his words and listen to him, but never for his sake. Jesus always said, I do not come on my own initiative. I come for the will of the Father. And if you've been following this far, you may wonder, well, if Jesus appeared once already to bring a gift of grace and mercy to all who hear, heed him, then why are you telling me about a fourth event? That fourth event hasn't happened yet, but it is coming. The fourth judicial hardening of all mankind will end in the judgment of all mankind. Jesus has told us exactly what the Father will do. He's literally left no choice. With Jesus having to come in the third instance, it paves the way purely for the fourth instance. You see, if you look at the history of the Jews, the flood itself, right, and the Tower of Babel, none of those have to point to Jesus, but they do. None of them have to, but Jesus has now shown up. We know this. And what did Jesus say? Come follow me so you may have eternal salvation. Because, as I said, what will God do? God will <clears throat> render judgment, whether good or bad, for everything we've done. Everything we've done in the open, everything we've done in the secret, everything we've done when we're kind of by ourselves driving somewhere, at home, at night, you name it. Everything will be brought forth. So I mentioned how we can kind of describe what a listener is. And I'm sorry this is a little bit longer, but I, I had felt that it's a really good lesson for us all. So what does it mean to hear in the biblical sense? And I apologize that it's always misaligned. I use software that is not Microsoft. So when Microsoft gets it, they move the formatting all over. But what does it mean to hear in the biblical sense? You have two components. You have hearing and listening. To hear the word of God, you can hear and listen to it. Hearing itself is passive. It's an event. I'll give you an example. If I go like this, you just heard that. 
right? Maybe you weren't paying attention, but you certainly heard the thump. It's passive. It just happens. Like my voice echoing or a kid screaming or a kid laughing in the background. You just hear it. It happens. A car racing down the road. It's passive. It's also natural. It will happen to us. We can't control it. When Jesus says those who have ears but do not hear, he's not talking about this. He's talking about this. That's kind of cool. I like that. Um, so listening. What is listening? Listening is an action. Hearing is an event. Listening is an action. And they're inseparable. But if you don't have the active component, you see where Jesus is coming from. It's a focus on some aspect of the specifics. I mentioned prior, I can pass hearing tests, right? Each event is a sound. And I can pass it. But there will be times that somebody says something remarkably important or simply beautiful to me. And I just don't get it. I just, what did you say? I missed it. Sometimes they don't want to share it again. Because they thought, oh, you weren't listening. There's an active component here. It's done in a state of consciousness. You have to want to do it. You ever hear the expression, tuning somebody out? They're turning this off. They still hear this. It doesn't mean anything. It's interesting. A lot of us will have our brothers like Josh or Kyle or Dennis, somebody come up and preach for us. Oftentimes, if you were to look at me, my eyes are closed. That actually helps me listen. It helps me actively listen. I'm often nodding along. This is an active component. You have to choose to do it. You do it with awareness, and you do it with attention. So now that we've established that, what are the types of listeners in general? I'm not talking about just life, per se. I'm talking about specifically the types of listeners when it comes to the word of God. Those who are hard of hearing. And I can share this with anyone. But these will be very familiar when you look at them. Hard of hearing is not that you've grown older or you have some sort of defect in you. No, hard of hearing is that you really have to want to listen to be able to listen to begin with. It's not easy. In fact, you can hear the sounds, but you have to work overtime to get it. And you'll see in Matthew 13 what I mean by that with the example of Jesus. The next type, those who are dull or ineffective at listening. Have you ever given someone instructions? Don't touch the stove. I've done it. Don't touch the stove. And you go and do it. That's not a hard hearer. That's someone's dull, ineffective. Wait a minute, if I would have just thought for two seconds, I would have saved myself the pain that's now in my hand. Right? It's like when your parents say, don't cross at a red light. Oh, mama, I see people do it all the time, right? To so that one time you're not paying attention, car hits the kid. It happens more often than not. Those who have itching ears, those who are inclined to think, let's turn there for a second, Second Timothy Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Paul declares, For a time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, <coughs> but they will in, 
They will want to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, who will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. I'm not going to name the person, but they're here today, and they know what I'm about to say. I asked if they were going to visit their family. And this person replied, my mom is in town, and she wants to hear Christmas carols. I'm not mocking her. She's probably a great woman. She has a great child, after all. But that's that example. I mentioned a little aspect because it's Christmas time. I'm not going to teach you that Christmas time means the birth of Christ. But people who celebrate tomorrow as if it were the birth of Christ, those are the myths Paul is talking about. Right? Right? Amen, brother. (laughs) Those are the myths that Paul talks about. They want people to make them feel good. Jesus will make you feel good when you surrender to him. There's nothing but peace, joy, and tranquility. Remember, Jesus is meek. Even when he was angry, he was never destructive. He was never rageful. Jesus, perfect human being. Jesus is perfection. Those with itching ears. And then those who are good with noble hearts. You might recognize these examples. One of them is the Bereans. They are so noble that when the word is preached before them, they actually open up the scriptures and follow along. They look to see if it's true. It's not that they don't trust the guy. It's more of a trust but verify. Oh, wait, this is what he's saying. Now I see it. And this is what each preacher who stands before you will do if you'd like to follow along or please turn to this scripture. It's done to help you. Some people can commit it to memory. Paul, our brother who came to preach to us recently, he commits a lot of that to memory. I like to have mine written out so I can pick up the points rapidly. But either or, those who are noble and those who are good at listening. So what is good listening? And why is it important? Good listeners are those who are blessed. Whenever Jesus says, blessed are those who hear, he he talks specifically to the disciples and he says, you are blessed today for you have heard this and no one else has. And it's the same even today in this room. If anyone truly doesn't believe in Jesus, simply hearing the true words of Jesus is a blessing to you. It's never meant to harm you. Good listening means you have a saving faith. If you hear the word our brother had preached this morning, and rightfully so, in James, are you a man who looks in the mirror and forgets about what he looks like, or are you a man who becomes an effectual hearer and an even better doer? And you might say, well, you kind of jumbled the words a bit. I assure you I didn't. If you effectually hear, everything you do will be effectual. Going back to our lesson, what makes up listening? Are you good at listening before God? Are you good at the active component? You see, the Pharisees heard Jesus just like the disciples did. Judas and Peter heard the exact same words at the exact same time whenever they were together with Jesus. But look at their outcomes. If you listen to God, you bear fruit. You bear the kind of fruit he wants from you. I'll give you an example. One of the fruits of the Spirit is patience, and I know we all can appreciate working on that. I need a lot of it myself. 
But wherever you think you need patience is opportunity, because you can be patient with everything. You can be patient with people cutting in front of you in line. You can be patient with people driving down the road. There are far too many examples, but I think you get it. To bear fruit for the Lord. If you hear properly, and you listen correctly, and you do what is required of you, you will bear all of the fruit that Jesus expects of you. <clears throat> to prevent apostasy. Whenever Jesus says, be on your guard, <clears throat> he's not saying, treat the guy in front of you with malignment. That's easy to do. We'll kind of have an unsuspecting eye. It's like, what, what are you getting at? Or, I don't believe you because I think differently. That's not what's being said. It's to prevent apostasy. You see, <clears throat> when Paul talks about people who would forbid marriage, if you look at the Catholic faith, a huge component of the Catholic faith involves the Knights Templar. They were forbidden to marry. Just like priests were forbidden to marry. In fact, sometimes still are. Paul warns against that. If you listen to God, you prevent apostasy. And what is apostasy? It's someone who believed correctly first, and then they believe incorrectly next. <clears throat> to avoid rejection, the rejection of God. In our scripture reading today, Jeremiah points out God will destroy most, but not all of you. God has simply rejected those he's about to destroy. And he will destroy many of them. In fact, <coughs> when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and literally the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, you have to remember, this is Zion. This is the beginning of Zion in scripture. This is David's holy city. And the destruction, the Romans will absolutely obliterate everything. God rejected those people at that time. Not everyone. The ones who listened to God with active skills, the ones who worked on it, the ones who believed Jesus, they got out. Now, I'm not looking to split hairs with every circumstance. Some of them could have been murdered along the way. The Romans were absolutely ruthless. But to have active listening will help you. You will not be rejected from God. <clears throat> And to escape condemnation. You ever wonders what happens when we die? There's a lot of debate. Some people say, just fall asleep. And they'll show you the scriptures that say it. Other people say, no, you're instantly waking up wherever you are meant to be. Regardless of what the debate is, active listening to our Lord means you escape condemnation. Think of Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? And whatever it was, many of them were good things. And Jesus says, get away from me, I never knew you. That's condemnation. An eternity without our Lord. So how to improve your listening. And thank you for your patience today. I hope it's worth your time. But how do you improve your listening skills? There's a process. Simple process. And I just tied it all together. You can be quiet. I'm not saying... It's not like a sermon. Actually, that's probably the easiest part of a preacher's job. But it's to be quiet. I have a tendency to just want to interject. I'd be like, wait, 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 I know where you're going. And you just want to interject and interrupt the person. No, it's not worth it. 
When we read the dialogue from our Lord, he gives it to us in whole. He doesn't give it to us in peace. But you have to imagine, for the amount of people with their pride before him, they would have cut him off several times. But Jesus was perfectly patient. Give honor to the person. It's the same way you would give anybody speaking before you in a lesson. Just give honor. Make sure you repeat and praise, especially if a question arises. Especially if a question arises. You know, we read today, <clears throat> we read today a question, one of the rare questions Jesus truly asks. He says, but what do you think? If the Pharisees were somewhat honest with themselves, they could have turned around and said, you've asked us what we thought, Lord, here is what we think. That goes way much further, a whole lot further than just spouting some answer off. And we do it. I do it all the time. I've had arguments with friends who are smarter than me, and I'll just spout something off. Or I'll be helping a friend with something that's serious in their life. And they'll just spout something off. But they miss the question because they actually didn't actively listen to it to begin with. They thought the conversation was somewhere else. But if you're able to be quiet and sort of repeat and praise it, you can say, oh, wait, I'm paying attention. At least I know where you are, even if I don't have your answer. Because we don't all have the answers. Some of us have more answers than others. Some are very timid and shy. And number, another one is clarification here. Lord, what do you mean by this? If you look closely in your scripture, Jesus will say quite a few times, how do you not get this? He's not mocking them. He's trying to show that they've been given enough simple description and simple explanation that they ought to know it. But it's okay if you don't get it. Your saving grace is ask for clarity. Wait, what do you mean by this? Wait, oh, you meant this? And you begin to build the links in your mind, and you will see over time, and it happens rapidly, you will be able to answer Questions to show you truly heard what was asked. Sometimes people asking the question have the same speech impediment as the person trying to answer. Clarity itself will help you through that. Wait, oh wait, you meant this. But we could focus on anything. We could have a preconceived notion about whoever's asking it. The Pharisees hated Jesus. They could have a preconceived notion about some aspect and they want to sort of zero in or laser focus on that part, and they'll miss the whole thing. Satan says you shall surely not die, right? What happens to Adam and Eve? They eventually die, do they not? But if we focus on just one part and we set an anchor there, you can miss the whole thing. I'll give you a litmus test in your scripture, and this is one I've struggled with a lot. When Jesus says, I tell you, the scriptures say, do not murder. And then he says, but I say unto you, he who hates his brother has committed murder. Right? It's the same thing. Now, being angry at your brother is not the same thing as hating him. But if they would have asked for clarity, it's like, oh, wait a minute. The ultimate physical force of taking someone's life is no different than me saying, I hate you, you're worthless, and I never want to see you again. I love my sister a lot. When she was a small kid, she said that to her mother. When mom died, she knew 
She couldn't take her words back. You never know. Again, I'm not saying anyone here says that. Don't, please don't mistake me. But if you find that this is before you, a lot of this slowing down, if you will, will help you. God designs it that way. All of this shows patience. Helpful steps. Make listening an active component of worship. It doesn't mean that somebody in the audience can't share a lot of thoughts. We have some really knowledgeable people here. Mark, Dennis, for example, David. Everybody has some really good stuff to say. But when you make listening an active component of your worship, you're going to absorb what will help you. Even if the sermon is 10 minutes or 110 minutes, it looks like. But look at the speaker. Lean in if necessary. You know, and here's something for the young males in the audience, those who want to kind of woo a girl. If she leans in when she's talking to you, she's really interested. She might not realize she's doing it. But it's a sign that she's truly interested in whatever you have to say. It is the same with the audience and the speaker. If you want to listen and you're engaged and you're following along, you'll be like, oh, wait. You'll slowly start to lean in. It doesn't have to be exaggerated. But you'll want to hear more of it. These body, uh, body languages, if you will, the signs of your body. <clears throat> Read along in your Bible, not just the PowerPoint. I was late today because PowerPoint's new for me. I love PowerPoint. I use it at work. But I use it strictly in a business sense. But some people really love PowerPoint. And it helps them. And I thought, oh, that's cool. I'd love to do that. But we can put the scriptures up here all day long. But if you're looking at the screen, you might miss the point. When you read your Bible, you actually can jump to other verses surrounding it that expand on the point for you. Uh, Brother Josh had taught this morning. I asked a question. Did you talk about verse 25? It's actually in the course material. I thought because I was late, we might have already gone through there. But if you follow along in your Bible, you might be, oh, wait, there's a cross-reference. And you go, flip, 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 flip. Ah, there we go. And it'll help your understanding. And it'll help encourage you that not only do you understand it, but you can work sort of ahead of the game. Not outsmart, per se, but you can work ahead of the game saying, ah, I see where they're going. Listen with faith. The Pharisees had no faith. Well, not entirely zero faith, but they certainly had no faith that Jesus was the Messiah. But if you listen with faith, even if the preacher isn't the best in the world, there's some part of their message that is true. They've gone through the scriptures, they've brought it out, they're trying their best to show you. Listen with faith. Listen with faith that, hey, this guy isn't going to hurt me. He's actually going to say something to help me, even if I realize it. Some of us, we don't want to hear the same thing 20 times over. How many times did Jesus have to tell the same thing to the Pharisees? Listen with faith. I think I hit the button again. Listen with the intent to act. This is key. We have some Old Testament references to start with Ezekiel. James was covered this morning. An effectual doer. When you hear the word of God, act on it. Even in the smallest of ways. The smallest of ways. People like kindness, unless they're just miserable old coots. And they do exist in the world, but people like kindness. 
But if you like kindness and you notice in your own life that you're not really kind, do something kind for someone. The smallest act can make the biggest difference, especially if the person you do it for doesn't know. I went to Walmart the other night to Christmas shop a bit. And this lady is working in the aisle. She's a Walmart worker. She's an older lady. She's got some headphones kind of thing. And she's got a big old work cart there. And I stopped to the side. And I said, I'm sorry. Go ahead. We can, we can wait. She's like, no, let me move it. She was just frazzled. I said, no, 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 no. You're just as important as me. I, the consumer, might spend money. But you have to put the product on the shelf. You have to make sure it's in the right area. You have to make sure it's scanned in the inventory. I can't buy the good if you don't do your job. I told her. You're just as important as me. Her whole world lit up. I'm not sharing this to boast. I'm sharing this that even the smallest act of kindness, you never know if a person is depressed. You never know if a person has suicidal thoughts. You never know if maybe somebody's wife left them. That will destroy a man. But even the smallest act of kindness. <laughs> you ever wave to a little kid? I waved to Brandon's daughter today, and she smiled. The smallest act of kindness. Listen with the intent to act. The smallest act of kindness. Pointing out something pretty. Anything. And to finish up this morning, this is our conclusion. Contrast Cain and Peter. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, God asked him a question that we already know God knew the answer to. God asked Cain, where is your brother? Who here remembers Cain's response? Am I my brother's keeper? Cain didn't listen to God. God had already told him, he's like, look, why are you sad? Don't let your countenance fall because sin is crouching at the door. You know what God is really doing there besides helping the young man? He's saying, I know you're going to sin. Here's your chance to stop it before it happens. What was that sin? He killed Abel. You see, he already got in trouble because he offered an inferior or an incorrect sacrifice to God. And we could debate the details. It might be fun because those discussions I love. Iron sharpens iron. But he had already told Cain, look, if you don't master this, Sin is going to consume you. And so when he asked Cain, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? The Lord knew. The Lord gave him a chance to realize that maybe he should know. You know, things would have been different if he said, you know what, I got angry, Lord. I killed my brother. What do I do? The Lord would have had pity. The Lord had some grace. He didn't kill Cain right away, did he? No, Cain lived a full life. Cain gives birth to Enoch. He sent him away. He could have figured it out still. When you read about Cain in the rest of your Bible, he doubled down refusing. He didn't want to listen to God anymore. The moment people don't want to listen to God, you get Nikita Khrushchev. He's a brilliant man. Well educated. He's actually a pretty good tactician. His... <laughs> When, from a strategic standpoint, putting missiles in Cuba, even though it angers us, that's a pretty good thing. That's how you keep your enemy in check. But he didn't want to listen to God. He hated God. He wanted to 
eliminate God everywhere because he followed the crazed perceptions of Karl Marx, a man also who hated God. But what about Peter? We mentioned this morning that Peter had denied Jesus three times. We're familiar with this. In the Gospel account of John 21, Jesus, they're having breakfast together. Jesus says, little children, you haven't caught anything. And they get fish, and they cook it up, and they eat. And immediately after breakfast, Jesus hits Peter. Not physically, but he hits him with emotion. He says, Peter, do you love me? Can you imagine how that would feel? We all love Jesus. Jesus would ask us, do you love me? Again, Jesus knows the answer. He's not asking for his own sake. He's asking for your sake. Each time, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. Lord, you know that I love you. It broke Peter. It absolutely broke him. But it produced the correct response. Each time, Peter was correctly listening. And you know how we know that? When Jesus said, feed my sheep, what did Peter do? He spread the gospel. I love the story behind Peter's death. He realized his true worth before the Lord. He was willing to die for the Lord. He kept his word. He didn't realize what he said when he said it. And we often don't say it. Lord, we are willing to die for you. Jesus says, okay, I will show you. When Peter died, legend had it that he had to wash. His wife died first. That's brutal. Some people would be like, you know what, kill me so I don't have to see her suffer. She died, and then he died. But if you look in Revelation, Peter's name is recorded in the most beautiful of senses. For all eternity. So, that wraps up our lesson today on what it means to listen to God. If you're not a Christian today, and some part of the sermon moved you, or you've been wrestling with God for a long time and you'd like to come to him, let us not be your obstacle, but let us be your help. You see, Jesus says those who obey him are blessed. One of Jesus' commandments is not only to follow him, but it is to in turn help others follow him. If you're struggling with something in your life or you would like to come forward and be baptized into service to our Lord, the waters are ready. We will help you. We will receive you just as God has received us. Please stand as we together as we sing.